Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Trisha Keffer. I hope you enjoy the following interview. And if you do, and you have some ideas for new books in landscape architecture, please visit my website and drop me an email. My website is plantspeoplelove.com. This is Trisha Keffer with New Books in Architecture with a special mini-series in landscape architecture. The book today is Fido. Principles and Resources for Site Remediation and Landscape Design. The authors are Kate Kennan and Neil Kirkwood, published by Routledge in 2015. Hi, Kate. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Trisha. So, Kate, tell us a little bit about yourself. So, I'm a landscape architect. I work with uh, Offshoots here in Boston, which Offshoots is a landscape architecture and planning company that I founded about seven years ago. And... Um, I got really excited about phytoremediation sort of early on in my career because we were given a a gas station site down um, in Cape Cod and we were asked to turn it into a public park. And so I was really interested in thinking about what, you know, plants could do for the environment. So I got really excited about phytoremediation and I've been doing you know, about 10 years of research ever since about the subject and love to sort of share the information with others to utilize in their design processes. That sounds fascinating. Could you tell us a little bit about your educational background? Yeah, sure. I um, went to Cornell University undergrad for a degree in landscape architecture. Um, And then I worked for a few years and actually went back, back to school for my master's in landscape architecture from Harvard. And um, I was finished that degree and then uh, actually started teaching there um, a few years later. I actually started running a research seminar on phytoremediation at Harvard for three to four years and now run a research seminar at Northeastern University. That sounds fascinating. I, I love this book. This is great for professionals and for students. Um, it's such a great tool. Um, so tell us a little bit more about your motivation for writing the book. You said you were inspired by one of your colleagues. Yeah, well, inspired by this brownfield site. So we we got this project that, um, you know, it was a gas station and, and a town down on the Cape wanted to turn it into a public park. But the issue was, is typically they would just go in there and dig up all the contaminated soil and haul it away, which was really, really expensive. It was going to be about $350,000 for a, not even a one acre site. And to me, it was also sort of an impact on the environment that was unnecessary. We we're going to have to move this all and just transport the problem somewhere else. So I started doing a little bit of research on the subject, um, started talking to Neil Kirkwood, who is my co-author, who um, uh, is a was the chair of the Depart- landscape architecture department at Harvard at the time, and he knew a little bit about phytoremediation. And then we both started diving into this research project to think about what plants could do for the site instead of digging and hauling all the materials. So that's what we did. We spent about a year and a half um, designing the site and installing it. And instead of hauling all that material away, we treated it with plants. And uh, from there, sort of the research just began. I get real excited about 
um, you know, not wasting time and energy and money and generating uh, these sort of legacy environmental problems when plants could actually, you know, help us clean up some of these major issues. So, um, you know, there's over 600 thousand brownfields um, in the U.S., and that's sort of a low estimated number by the U.S. EPA. And there's just so much that plants can do that we don't take advantage of. Um, so let's start with just uh, the basics. So you start chapter one, what is the difference between phytotechnology and phytoremediation? Yeah, so basically the, the terms are kind of interchangeable. A lot of people do uh, interchange them, but what phytoremediation means, it's, it's the idea that you can use a plant to come in and help remediate a contaminant or a pollutant that's on the site. So the pollutant is already there on the site and we use plants to either help mitigate it or hold it in place um, to try to take it out of human and environmental risk. The term phytotechnology is a little bit different because it's not just plants that are remediating. It includes um, phytoremediation, but also includes other, other things that like, um, uh, you know, benefits that plants do uh, prophylactically before contamination event occurs. So, for example, uh, stormwater filtration systems or bioswales or rain gardens, that sort of thing, are all forms of phytotechnology. They're not remediating a contaminant that's already there. Contaminants are coming into the system and they're preventing the contamination for say from, say, spreading into a stream or the groundwater. Same thing with, like, a green wall or a green roof. They may not necessarily be remediating something, but they're preventing uh, potential um, contaminants from, you know, getting into the environment or doing other environmental services. So all sort of uh, use of plants that perform environmental services is, is under the term phytotechnology. Okay. So plants, um, how do they operate? Because it was interesting in the next uh, chapter to talk about uh, the basics of what plants do. Uh, you know, they need uh, sunlight, they need water, they need uh, et cetera. And how does this relate to the phytotechnology and what are the uh, limit- limitations of, well, I will, I will interchange the words phytotechnology or remediation. How do plants, how do they do it? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, basically plants, like you got to go back to eighth grade biology, right? You see, you have this thing photosynthesis that the plants do, right? And so the photos in, in photosynthesis, two key things happen, right? There's the plant transforms energy from the sun and utilizes it in its growth. But in that process, about, you know, up to 40% of the plant's photosynthetic product gets leached out of the roots um, as a form of sugar. And so what happens is when that happens in the zone around the roots, we call that the rhizosphere, that's where we have this huge sort of um, growth of microbiology, you know, whether it be fungus or um, bacteria or other nematodes, but you have all of this microbiology that happens in the root zone because of the sugars that are released and other phytochemicals that are released from the plant that create that rich micro, um, uh, you know, that rich rhizosphere zone with that microbiology. So that's the first thing that the plant does is it acts as a catalyst and sort of brings all the sugar down into the soil. And then the second thing that happens is the plant can actually move tons of water through transpiration. So in photosynthesis, it needs water plant sucks up water from the soil and then it uses some of it, but it also transpires a lot of water into the atmosphere. So one of the statistics I love that one of the scientists I met with told me is um, 
plants in North America move more water combined than all the rivers combined in North America, because basically they transpire so much water. They're just constantly pumping out this water in the atmosphere. So what happens is when those two processes happen, we can utilize those two processes to help break down contaminants or pollutants that might be in the soil. So say, for example, when we're ramping up the microbiology because we're putting all of this great sugar and everything into it, those microbes can also help break down organic contaminants that might be in the soil. Um, and, and I can explain a little bit about the difference between organic and inorganic contaminants later, but that's a real key factor, right? There's this opportunity to actually break down and change the pollutants so that they are no longer harmful in the environment. And then the other thing is, is that when the plant is sucking up all that water through transpiration, it has the ability to move some of those contaminants into its leaves, roots, stems, and where breakdown can either occur or the plant can sequester, say, a certain pollutant like um, like arsenic into its leaves. And then you could come, come by and sort of harvest the plant and bring it to another facility to take it off site and landfill it so that you're actually using the plant as sort of this vehicle to move the pollution into the plant and then harvest it from the site and getting it out of the soil. So we use those two sort of, um, you know, mechanisms of the sugars and that movement of water, the plant really aids in what the microbes and other um, organisms in the soil are doing. And when you move these plants off site, do they require more phytoremediation or do they go to a landfill or what happens to the plant at that point? Yeah. So only, so that's why it's so critical, this differentiation between organic and inorganic contaminants um, is, uh, let me explain that a little bit. So organic contaminants are, are plant, are contaminants or pollutants on a site that um, tend to be a compound, right? They tend to be a compound of carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, other things, things like petroleum, things like chlorinated solvents. These are things that humans have put into our environment um, that may not have necessarily been there before. But there's this ability for the plant to actually, through its microbes and through um, things that might happen in the plant leaves, actually break that pollutant down so that into metabolites that are no longer harmful. So when you're dealing with these organic uh, pollution contaminants, you don't have to harvest the plant at all from the system. You can literally plant the plant in, it helps serve as a catalyst, and the microbes and the plant do the work, and you don't have to harvest the plant. Mm. With inorganic contaminants, it's different. So inorganic contaminants on a on a site um, is a pollutant that uh, would be something on the periodic table, right? And something on the periodic table, right, is in its most elemental form. You can't break it down into smaller parts because it's in the smallest environment and, you know, uh, form that it's in. So these would be things like lead and arsenic and chromium and say any of the radionuclides like cesium and strontium, these are all things that you can't break down into a smaller part. So the idea is with most of these is, is that the mechanism we would try to d- use with the plant is to be able to suck it up into the plant. We call it hyperaccumulation. The plant would hyperaccumulate or uh, store that contaminant in its leaves we would come along, we would cut down the material, and then we would test that material to see if it had enough uh, of the contaminant in it that we would have to send it to a hazardous waste landfill to um, to uh, basically landfill the material. 
but or sometimes when you test it it's just you know there's only background levels or minute levels uh and it has harvested some but it you know sometimes phytoremediation takes a very long time but maybe those small pieces that are in the plant could just be composted and not sent to a landfill so that's the way that it works the the challenges with inorganic contaminants is um it is very, very difficult to get hyperaccumulators to work on many sites. Even though we can find hyperaccumulators for lead and um, many of these uh, other heavy metals, we can get it to work in a greenhouse study. We can't get it to work out on a site because the chemistry in the soils is very, very difficult and sort of binds the lead and um many of these other kind of metals that we see all the time to the soils and we can't get them into the plant. So, so hyperaccumulation and this sort of idea of using phytoremediation for inorganics is actually very tricky and very difficult to do and often not applicable. Whereas on the organic side that I mentioned before with things like petroleum and chlorinated solvents, um, even some of the explosives are in that category. There's a lot of opportunity to plant plants, let it degrade the um, these particular contaminants and then not even have to harvest the plant. So in terms of like the whole entire field, that's really where our opportunity lies is looking at the, or the, the kind of, uh, gigantic amount of organic contaminated landscapes out there rather than sort of the metals, um, the metals and those sorts of things are much harder to do with phytoremediation. I appreciate it in your book where you're talking about, you know, there's opportunities, but there's also, Yes, limitations to uh, this technology. Um, can you discuss more about the limitations? And you noted in the book that it's important to make sure that what we do do is successful and to use um, specialists uh, to make sure that you know, to maintain the rep- to maintain the reputation. Um, could, you talk, could you talk more about the limitations of phytoremediation? Sure. Um, so. One of the key limitations I already mentioned is that it is incredibly um, contaminant specific, right? So you have to do, you have to pair the right plant with the right contaminant. And many contaminants that we find out there won't work. Um, they, the, we just don't have plants that are going to work in a in a in situ or on site. Uh, situation. So you have to really know the specifics of the technology to get it to work. The other challenge is, is that root zone depth, right? Is um, our plants, depending on what they are, phreatophytes, um, which means like a plant with a taproot system that's co- sort of like a living well, will send down a taproot about 20 feet down. Um, we can get other grasses and things about five feet down, but most plants are really in that top two foot zone. So you have to think also about where the contamination is in the soil um, strata, because we can only really uh, reach contamination that would be within that you know top 20 feet for certain species and even shallower for other species. So that's something to think about. Um, Third limitation is really like soil type and what's going on with the hydrology. Very often, say you might have the right contaminant and you might have the, a plant that can grow there, but the soil could be so clay or so tight that we can't move the water through it or we can't get the roots to penetrate. So that can be a very difficult situation. Um, sort of fourth challenge is just growing conditions. Like many of these um, sites can be very harsh growing conditions. They might be so phytotoxic, meaning 
the levels of the particular contaminant, there might be a cocktail of different things out there rather than just one thing. And sometimes that cocktail can be so phytotoxic that we can't get any plant to grow. So that's a challenge. Um, you know, it, it really is very specific. Um, the other thing too, is just time frame, right? What's so great about digging and hauling a contaminated site is that, you know, it's immediate. You can send a truck out there, you deal with the problem and then you send it off to a hazardous waste landfill. Um, it's very, very expensive, but it takes care of the problem immediately. It takes it out of, uh, human risk and again just d- deposits the problem somewhere else but um but with phytotechnologies it can take a very long time so pretty much the minimum length project i've seen for like low level contamination of organic sites is in the in the four year range um of plants being uh you know planted out there and then monitored over a series of four years uh, to clean something up, you know, it can go as long as 60 to 100 years, to be completely honest, depending on what the contaminant is. So time frame is a big challenge. Um, and, uh, you know, weather is a giant challenge. Too. <laughs> if you have a hurricane come in or you have a beaver come in and take down all your trees, all of a sudden your system uh, is has a problem. So there there are a lot of sort of disadvantages um, to it that you have to consider. Um, but you know, the main advantage of this, of course, is that when it does work, it can be about 10% of the cost as t- typical dig and home, right? When it does work, it's so much nicer and so much prettier and has other environmental services instead of hauling a whole bunch of soil away with a truck. Um, you know, there is other sort of community benefits in that, uh, you know, what, if you planted a phytoremediation installation, maybe other people in the community can get involved um, to actually help monitor and maintain the site. So, you know, there, there's lots of great things with phyto when it does work, but you have to have the time frame to do it. And like you had mentioned, a specialist who really knows how to pair the plant with the soil, with the site, with the contaminant, and knows how to monitor it to make sure it's working. Can phytoremediation then, if somebody's planning on putting in a gas station or an agricultural field, et cetera, would it be good as a preventative before they have land use changes? Yeah. I mean, that's where, honestly, that's the entire reason uh, we wrote this book is that so far, this technology has really just sat in the remediation realm, meaning uh, environmental engineers going out, using it to clean up something that had happened. And what we're excited about as designers is what can we learn from these remediation fields to help apply these in our everyday design projects? So, you know, all of us work in these urban conditions that many of them generate lots of contaminants. So, uh, like you mentioned, agricultural fields, right? Setting up buffers around the agricultural field that can clean up any of the excess nutrients or herbicides or pesticides. Um, same thing, like you mentioned with gas stations, there are little mini spills at gas stations all day long. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that's a big thing. Dry cleaners, there are little mini spills at dry cleaners all day long, and they can be one of the worst polluters out there that really put out these very, very uh, carcinogenic, cancer-causing um, chlorinated solvents. And the challenge is, is they get into the groundwater really fast. 
But one of the great things is, is that it's one of chlorinated solvents are one of the easiest things to get out of groundwater and clean up with um, some forms of uh, phyto phytotechnology species. So there's like major opportunity for plantings around things like dry cleaners or uh, light industrial sites, or even if we think about golf courses and how many nutrients and herbicides they use, or even um, something like, uh, you know, rivers, like you might have uh, some sort of use um, that might be a contaminating use, but up against a river. And what can you do between that use in the river. So there's just, there's so many opportunities that now we can learn from this real science, um, this real remediation science and try to take those um, principles that we learn and apply them to design practice. I think you need to write a book just for Florida. Um, this sounds like a lot of issues we're having here. Uh, we have uh, the Lake Okeechobee, uh, Everglades, golf courses. Um, and in reading your book, um, I was getting a little scary. It was like all the, you know, just, you know, that there's contamination at, you know, these dry cleaners and gas stations, et cetera. But I'm looking at my environment going, this is not good. <laughs> I know. Well, the impacts, that's one of the things we tried to put out there is, you know, people don't really realize the impacts on human health and we don't like to talk about it either. You know, many of the um, pesticides and herbicides that we use in the U.S. have been banned in Europe since the 1970s, you know. Uh, some of our, our, our biggest herbicide users, um, you know, that they've been shown to be cancer causing and do all these things. They're still like the widest spread use things on our corn crops here, atrochlor. And, you know, there's just a lot of um, uh, a lot of things that we still do here, um, you know, and scarily as the EPA gets dismantled, these things get uh, less and less regulated. So it's, it's good to be aware of your environment and sort of understand what things are going into it and, you know, not get scared, but to be realistic about what we're doing. Yeah, it's um, it definitely opened my eyes. And, and down here, our geology, especially in the southernmost part of Florida, it's uh, limestone and the water, it just goes through like a sieve. And uh, this could be a great use uh, for our area where there's got some agriculture around homestead, around houses. And I thought this is a, a fantastic book. Um, and the other thing I thought was really interesting that you um, mentioned there is, you know, plants can be like bellwethers for what's going on below ground. And knowing how to read uh, your environment can tell you a lot about what's above and below ground. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Sure. So there's this whole... Um, part of the phytotechnology science called phytoforensics. Very, very cool stuff. Um, I actually think it's one of the most promising parts of this field is um, there's this, this field is sort of led um, uh, by Dr. Joel Birkin at the, um, at Missouri S and T and him as well as, you know, quite a few other scientists, but currently he's been publishing a lot on it is this ability for plants to actually track the contaminants that are below the surface. Um, and so what they can do is actually take a little core sample of trees and they can tell if there's a, a plume of contaminated water, or contaminated soil underneath them by testing the tree, which is very, very cool. There's also a whole um, sort of group of scientists working on uh, technology where they fly drones or airplanes above trees and can actually look at the spectrum of light that the trees are emitting and tell 
where the plumes are of uh, different contamination because of the way that the light is emitting from the plant because the plant becomes stressed. So uh, really interesting stuff. There's like one of the projects I know that um, uh, is being worked on right now is just looking at NASA and Cape Canaveral and flying drones over that because there's a seven mile long plume of chlorinated solvents from where they used to spray fire retardants onto the rockets to, and, you know, the things to put them out after they blasted off. And so there's this huge plume of really nasty uh, chlorinated solvents, again, a very cancer causing nasty stuff under there. And they're actually mapping these plumes by this uh, detection of the, uh, of how the plants are emitting these lights, which is, is, is really cool stuff. Um, The other thing that's happening in this field is also this idea of actually genetically modifying some of the plants so that they literally turn a different color if they uh, if they encounter it. So, for example, there's this whole group working on sort of bomb spotting plants. Right? Is um you know when you when you have a a war or some sort of unexploded ordinances out in a big field. Um, that's a scary thing, and people can you know hit them and walk into them without realizing it. There's ideas out there that if you could spread seed and the plants turn, say, pink when, and they're really physically working on this, you know, the plant turns pink so that they can tell where these unexploded ordinances are, they'd be able to go out and then, uh, uh, you know, deactivate that before someone got hurt. So, or even, you know, there's even this idea that that could get applied at an airport, which, you know, sounds a little crazy, but, you know, there's lots of ideas about what sort of phytoforensics could do. So, um, but the opportunity to actually use plants to take a little vial of it to track a contaminant underneath the surface is the thing that Dr. Birkin, like I mentioned, is working on and is has huge implication because instead of, um, you know, normally the way that we test that sort of thing is we have to do these very expensive big um, mining, you know, big borings into the soil, which can be, you know, 10 grand a piece to do one boring and monitor the water quality. And, you know, in this particular case, he can go out and do a setup of $500 and do a hundred trees in a day at 50 bucks a tree and be able to really accurately map a plume over an entire site, you know, for much, much less money than an than a regular boring would be. So, there's just lots of opportunity in that field. They can't map every contaminant, but there, there are quite a few that they can do. Oh, that's fascinating. You mentioned, um, there isn't a mention in here about airports. I didn't see one. Can about the, I'm sure there's got to be a lot of pollution around that. Um, have you done any projects like that? We have not. You know, one of the biggest things is de-icing um, fluids uh, can be a real challenge. Um, the issue is the, and the reason we didn't dive into this too much is that many of those de-icing facilities and airports have salt, right? And what does salt do? <laughs> it kills plants. <laughs> and so salt is really hard because um, there are not any known, to my knowledge anyways, uh, phytoremediation systems to remediate salt. Um, usually, it, like I said, it kills plants. There are a certain number of plants that will live in a salty environment, but they don't necessarily mitigate it. There are a few kinds of plants called halophytes, where they actually take up the salt and secrete it onto their surfaces. 
Um, and then the idea, what some scientists are working on is trying to see if they could get enough biomass to secrete that and then harvest a plant. But I have not seen any super successful cases of that. And usually um, constructed wetlands and other things that are used to capture de-icing fluids and things that can have uh, residual salt in them. Um, usually the salt and those things sort of pass right through the system. So, uh, you know, they, the plant actually can't take it up and it doesn't get trapped in the soils and stuff. So, so anyways, it's sort of like, uh, a, and you know, the challenge too is right at an airport, what do they want? They want a, a no fly zone with no birds. And what does vegetation do? It brings in ecology, right? It's like the, they don't want bird strikes and they don't, it's the scary thing about airports, you know, they have these sort of safety zones around them that they just want to keep everything really low mode. So, you know, maybe outside that safety zone, something might be able to happen in the future. But, you know, right now it hasn't been a subject that I have particularly dove into. Maybe I'll have to, maybe I have to think about our brother's a pilot. So I'll have to, uh, I have to think about that. That's true. They don't really want birds around there. Um yeah. Yeah. Charles Waltine, um, who was the uh, previous chair of the landscape, the, the, not the current chair, but the previous chair to now of the landscape architecture department at Harvard's graduate school of design, did a lot of work on airport and airport design and wrote an entire book basically on that subject and how landscape architects could really kind of plug into that. So that's a great resource. I'll have to go look that one up. Um, yeah, you've got this whole great list of uh, planting typologies. Um, can you talk a little bit about, I was interested in uh, green roofs versus blue roofs. Yeah, sure. So, you know, this is a type, again, instead of remediation, it's a type of tech, phytotechnology, right, that um, you are utilizing to help uh, with stormwater mitigation. Um, and so... Um, the idea of a, of a green roof, most of us know it's a pretty standard technology, is, is that we're putting the green roof on there to actually help transpire water and not uh, have the water end up, um, have that water come from the roof and then go quickly uh, into somewhere else. We really are trying to get it to transpire back into the air as water vapor. So that's one thing. They also insulate the building. Um, there's lots of other advantages of green roofs that can make the membrane last a lot longer. You can provide habitat up there instead of this, uh, you know, void sort of urban environment. So that's really great about green, green roofs. Um, what's interesting about it is for stormwater, believe it or not, a better thing to do if you were just looking at stormwater volume alone They've shown that a green roof is actually not as good as just, say, a gravel roof. Like if you put a gravel roof up there, it's going to get hotter and it will actually transpire more water and will do more of the stormwater mitigation than a green roof will. Because a green roof stays cooler, it'll let more water off the roof long term. So there's been quite a few studies um, up in Canada at the University of Toronto looking at that very specific thing, sort of gravel gravel versus green roofs. So um, green roofs can be very pretty and again, provide habitat and some of the insulation, but in terms of water, actually a gravel roof is the best. And then there, and a lot of people call those brown roofs, right? Um, and then there's this sort of third type is a blue roof. Um, and the blue roof is the idea that you just literally uh, design the structure to be able to hold a certain amount of water on the surface of the roof. And then you would slowly let it go uh, after the storm, because that's what we're trying to stop is have these peak surges. 
And the other thing that happens too, is we do get a lot of evaporation of that water because it gets hot, like I just mentioned. So you can actually release a lot of water through evaporation and it just holds it on site and detains it. Of course, you don't get the environmental habitat benefits of having the green vegetation, but you do get a lot of benefits of you know, getting that water evaporated um, off the, and, and it can often be easier and less maintenance because you don't have to maintain the plant. So the biggest challenge, of course, is structure. You have to make sure, usually these are only done on new buildings because the structural engineer has to design in the weight load of all of that water, which can be a lot. Um, and green roofs, you know, you can get some of the smaller uh, less thick systems that you don't have to um, really that that don't weigh that much. They may only be twenty five pounds a square foot. So, um, so anyways, that those are the main distinctions between them. Um, you've got some other um, plant topologies here. Could you tell us? Well, I'll just go down the list a little bit here and and let let you tell us about it. You've got a stabilization mat. Uh, what is that, and what is it used for? Yeah, sure. So most of these, just to clarify about the typology, so. That some of the typologies we inv- we kind of invented <laughs> through the book, and some of them, like the green roof and blue roof, are ones that have been around as conventions. What we did is tried to collect as many different planting types that could be used by a designer to help prevent contamination or treat contamination that we could. So what a stabilization of mat is, it's when you have a very particular contaminant type, say lead, lead we cannot get up in the plants it would be amazing if we could because there's so many lead contaminated sites but we can't fight or remediate lead in the field we know this it's been tested you can find lots of research online about sunflowers and their hyper accumulators we can get it to work in the greenhouse but in the field not so much so when you can't get that contaminant into the plant or get it broken down one idea is to use a phytotypology of a stabilization mat. And what that means is basically you would add a little clean soil. You would come in and then plant a very, very thick layer of plants that will help hold that contaminant on site and not in the idea so that animals and people and other things can't access that contaminant. So it just stabilizes it on site, but takes it out of human and environmental risk. Um, it takes the, takes the risk away from it, exposure risk. And so much construction in wood is has arsenic and lead in it. So the only uh, solution is just to stabilize those two. Yeah, arsenic is actually one of the ones that there are some hyperaccumulators for. So arsenic in low levels might be able to be remediated, but but lead is a big one. Some of the other ones, um, like you were just talking about, you know, some of the other ones that you really have to stabilize are things like chromium. Um, many of the uh, the other heavy metals like aluminum, copper, zinc, all of those are not really good opportunities for phytoremediation. Really, the only ones that in terms of the metals that we know um, that we could actually, you know, phytoremediate are, um, there's a lot of opportunity for nickel, selenium, and arsenic um, is, are really the ones that we, we can potentially for inorganics treat with plants. The other ones we really want to stabilize. Um. Okay, I'm just going to keep going down the list here a little bit. We got uh, phyto irrigation, um, mitigation tree stands, hedgerows, uh, living fences. Uh, what's hedgerow and living fences? Yeah, so a hedgerow and a living fence is this idea that 
instead of putting in a regular hedge, you know, that we do all the time around our borders, is what if you designed the hedge to actually treat um, a contaminant that might be in an environment. So this might come in really handy at say a funeral home. I know it sounds sketchy, but (laughs) funeral homes can have releases of formaldehyde, which is used to embalm bodies. You know, there are little accidents that happen at these sort of micro industrial facilities. And so the hedge that you put around a funeral home could be a phytoremediation species to help break down the formaldehyde or at a, at, you know, a cemetery or graveyard, same thing. Your hedge or uh, a living fence is sort of a a concept that you see in the UK all the time done with willow is that they'll take live stakes of willow and willow, various species of willows are great phytoremediators of uh, formaldehydes, chlorinated solvents, also petroleum And so what we can do is take these sort of live cuttings of willow, weave them together, make a fence that's actually alive and keep pruning it so it's nice and thin so it doesn't take up a lot of space. But their root zone can really penetrate down and try to uh, help clean up some of those contaminants along the edge or maybe before it passes from your site to someone else's. And you're interesting about like cemeteries. A lot of places are kind of... I've read using them for like parks and such, but they can also be areas of contamination too. Yeah. You know, currently we pretty much embalm with formaldehyde, but previous to formaldehyde, you know, a lot of the old cemeteries have a lot of arsenic in them because um, they used arsenic uh, early on. And, you know, like I said, low levels of arsenic and in certain forms can be remediated, but you know, high levels are really tough. So you, you do find a lot of, a lot of these things. And, Arsenic is one of those things that's not really regulated um, the way that lead is here in the U.S., but it is carcinogenic. You know, it it has lots of cancer-causing um, uh, attributes, um, and uh, it's something to be careful of. Um, and, uh, let's see, go down the list here. We've got uh, wetlands and stormwater filtration. That's really important here in Florida, and using... Um, you know, bioswales. Um, how do you use uh, bioswales um, in your projects, et cetera? Yeah, so most of the time, um, these stormwater filtration systems, right, whether it be a constructed wetland or a bioswale, a rain garden, are most often used to treat nutrient loading. So in freshwater ecosystems, the challenge is phosphorus usually, is um, phosphorus, excess phosphorus in these freshwater ecosystems will create algae blooms, you know, which then um, die, they suck up all the oxygen from the water, and we have these eutrophication things where nothing else, these dead zones, right? And so in freshwater ecosystems, the contaminant is phosphorus, that's the problem. And in saltwater ecosystems, a very similar thing happens with nitrogen. So like, for example, here in Massachusetts on Cape Cod, we have a major problem with nitrogen entering. It's actually from all the septic systems, from all the you know, homeownership on the Cape and vacation homes and whatnot. They're not connected to sewer and the septic leaches out, leaches nitrogen, and uh, it leaches into the estuary and creates these algae blooms. So um, we like on the Cape, for example, we're actually using constructed wetlands to start to treat some of that groundwater before it hits the estuary. So we can use these sort of water systems, bioswales or whatever to actually treat the nitrogen or phosphorus before it hits the water body that it's impacting. So, um, in an urban environment, uh, we would say install a rain garden or a, uh, bioswale, 
along a parking lot because parking lots actually can generate an awful lot of, in our case, phosphorus here. And so we can install that and then use the planted system and especially the soils to sorb the phosphorus as the water, the stormwater might run over the parking lot and travel into a, a bioswale. And we'll use the planted system and the soils to sorb the phosphorus to, to, to basically to filter out the phosphorus from the water. And then the clean water moves out. Um, and uh, the, the, the thing about, and a lot of us call this green infrastructure, right? It's sort of the kind of common, common name for many of these stormwater protocols. The, the challenges with these systems is the devil is in the details. And um, we have found many of these systems, you know, after, you know, 20 years of these things being installed, you know, especially starting out in Portland, Oregon, uh, and the Chesapeake Bay area were sort of early adapters of many of these technologies. You know, a lot of these systems have been tested afterwards, and sometimes they can actually release more nutrients and contaminants than uh, they than were even going into them from the beginning, because the designer might add compost, for example, and the compost may break down and actually release more phosphorus. And you have to really stay on top of the technology and what's coming out in recommendations because the soil matrix and what you're actually putting into the soil to start it, it, it is a really big component of what's going to actually happen there. And long-term maintenance is a big deal too about you know, how, how you keep the sediment out of the system and these sort of things. So they are really great systems to incorporate in our urban environments if they're done right and if they have maintenance. Um, but it's just something to caution people is, is that not all green infrastructure actually works. And you were, I was thinking too, you're talking about septic tanks as well, because um, there's still a lot of septic tanks here in Florida. Um, and what would you say to plant around uh, just a, a regular small urban uh, lot? Yeah, that is a major challenge because like likely, you know, the, the septic system, so small, we call them here Massachusetts Title V systems, but basically a leach field with a septic tank. Um, you know, they will, uh, you know, treat things like uh, many of the bacteria and nasty viruses because through the sand filter and the microbes living in the soil. But usually the nutrients pass right through. And so we're also concerned about pharmaceuticals as well. Um, pharmaceuticals typically don't get broken down and can travel into the groundwater and out to whatever um, watershed it's going to. So um, it really, again, sort of depends on what the contaminant is that you're treating. But again, here in the Cape, we're, we're targeting nitrogen. And so um, one of the things we can start to think about are these concepts of a phyto buffer, right? This idea that you could plant a hedgerow of a particular tree species, like say, for example, here in Massachusetts, in our climate, targeting nitrogen at about a 10 foot depth. We're looking at various species of native willow. We're looking at... Um, uh, various species of hybrid poplar and poplar deltoides are native cottonwood to try to plant around these systems. The challenge is, is, you know, those plants have really active roots and they want to send their roots right into that leach field and block it up. So you have to think about things like root barriers. You know, there's other design things you have to think about. You don't want to just go start planting willow and poplar around your uh, leach field because all of a sudden you could end up with a clogged leach field really quickly. Um, but, you know, there are these things, uh, plant systems that um, we've been starting to look at to try to create a buffer around these two to kind of treat the contaminant at the source before it becomes a bigger watershed problem. 
that reminded me of maybe hospitals too, um, planting some of these around hospitals with all the pharmaceuticals, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, most of the time hospitals, right, are going to be releasing their water into a sewer system and it's mm-hmm. going to be treated, which is different than a single family house, which is probably going, you know, a single family house can be, you know, a couple different things that can go into a sewer or a neighborhood treatment system where they will take these contaminants out. So typically a hospital would have some sort of treatment system, you know, that's going to capture um, this stuff and probably not release it into the surrounding environment. But believe it or not, the, the I, I guess I, I love this sort of quote is, um, uh, you know, the former director of the Cape Cod Commission had said to me, it's like death by a thousand cuts. You know, basically we have this forested, beautiful, you know, forest in the center, salt marsh ecosystem around Cape Cod. And we have all of these little um, houses that are spread all over the place and none of them connect to sewer because there is no sewer. And so we have all of these little insertions, but all of those little insertions add up to a really big problem. Um, and so that it, it tends to be a lot of those little things that aren't regulated or aren't, aren't taken care of that, uh, can create some of our biggest problems. Uh, that reminds me of another quote. If you take care of the small things, the big things will take care of themselves. Right. Right. I mean, it's good to start small and think decentralized. I mean, and that's, that's one of the great uses about phytoremediation is that it is sort of a decentralized approach. And it can be used anywhere. How do you design with your phytoremediation? How do you use it in your designs? I mean, literally, literally every single landscape design project we have has some element of phyto in it, whether the client asks for it or not. Only because, you know, we we are thinking about where the project is located, where uh, the road is, you know, where, you know, one thing I'm not even touching on is air pollution. Um, but there are a whole suite of species that have thicker, waxier leaves with more hairs that can pick up more particulate matter. And when you live along a really busy highway, um, you know, the asthma rates can be uh, 50 to 80% more along a highway corridor where you have all of these particulate, all this particulate matter. And so, you know, we think a lot about the species that we're planting in those areas. So pretty much every project has one of those one of those phytotypologies in it. And again, you may not have asked for it. You may not realize that it's there, but we're trying to always do, you know, do the best we can for the environment as we're doing our landscape design. Do you have a favorite typology? I mean, I would say the most, um, the most utilized typology that we use that other people aren't using, I would say is the, is the um, degradation, uh, like the, the degradation hedge, basically, that the one that I described before, is we will, every single time we're planting a hedge around a property or a buffer around the edge, we are thinking about what that plant is to help clean up either the existing groundwater or, you know, even if we're doing a residential project, people are throwing down so much nitrogen and other fertilizers onto their lawns and and herbicides and things. And often it may not be our client because we try to convince our clients to go all organic, but you know, our, the, the properties washing into their property will line the edges so that the, the impacts of the of surrounding properties don't come onto theirs. So, you know, that kind of thing. And it, all it is is plant species selection. You know, we're going to create the hedge anyway. So why don't we do something really, really cool, you know, really think about what the plant community is that we're, that we're going to employ. Uh, do you think the plants and the biotechnology, are they 
attractive to your clients? Do they, do they like the look of it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's all about the way you combine foliage texture and seasonal interest, you know, so you have to really think about, you know, what, how you're going to use it and how you're going to prune it. You know, one of the challenges with many of the phytotechnology species is they grow way faster than other plants. And the reason that's because, you know, what we're trying to do is capitalize on the amount of sugar that plant is putting into the soil and amount of water it's sucking up. So of course the plants that grow faster tend to do more of this than other plants. So they tend to be these very fast growing species. So one of the challenges is we have to stay on top of a pruning strategy that keeps the plants looking good. And then many of them can even be short lived because they grow so fast. So when I say short lived, instead of a tree living a hundred years, it'll live 30, right? So we have to think about what we plant behind it or a harvesting strategy that the plants slowly get cut down and we plant something behind it. So we just have to be thoughtful about the way that we use these species that we typically, you know, don't use in design a lot. Well, Kate, this is fascinating. I could, I could talk to you all day about this. This is amazing book. Um, and we're very excited because I think, you know, the, the, the biggest word, we just want to get the information out there. You know, this was, a sort of a labor of love as I was collecting it for my own projects. It just sort of made sense that we started writing down the ideas and sharing them with other designers. So we're excited that it's um, that people are utilizing it and using it as a reference. I think it needs to have one for each of the 50 States. Yeah, it is. And it's true. It is very, the plants that you utilize are very regional. And because we are here in Boston, our, our plant lists and stuff are pretty much, they're geared more to the Northeast than they are in other places. But, uh, but yeah, there's certainly work to be done in generating deeper, fuller plant lists for other, other areas. But you know, the, the information's out there. I just added to your workload, I think. Yeah, that that would be that. That's another thing we we do most of our work here on the Northeast. So to be completely honest, like it's like sort of my focus area. But uh, but yeah, I just need a student or an intern to help us with that. So if anyone out there wants to help us, get <laughs> we'll, we'll put it out there. Um, yeah. well, thank you so much for being here. I know we've taken up a lot of your time today. Um, can you tell us what you're working on right now? Yeah, sure. So. I mean, the biggest um, thing that I'm finding that we need to see are more pretty case studies, <laughs> maybe visual case studies of where this stuff has been utilized and it has worked. Um, and so one of the things we're doing right now is working with a lot of different remediation engineers and even other designers who have used these things and going out and taking photographs and documenting case studies. So I hope at some point there will be in a, you know, in addition to the reference book that we created, a sort of a coffee table book of sort of beautiful kind of populist projects that people can get inspired by. And uh, so that's sort of the next, that's sort of the next, uh, next thing. That sounds fascinating. And I, I look forward to your next book. Cool. Thank you. I mean, it'll be a little bit in the making this time, but uh, it, you know, the last one, the last one took five to seven years, so I anticipate <laughs> this will be the same. Well, thank you so much for being here today, and uh, we look forward to hearing more from you. Great. Thanks, Trisha. Thanks for the opportunity to talk. And again, the book is Fido, Principles and Resources for Site Remediation and Landscape Design by Kate Kennan and Neil Kirkwood, published by Routledge in 2015. If you have any ideas for books, again, please drop me an email through the American Society of Landscape Architects Florida chapter and enjoy your week.